Now I pray tonight, Lord, that you will speak into our lives as we hear a message that will prepare us for the challenges that may befall us as a nation, as individuals. And so I pray tonight that we will realize the value of being spiritually fit. And I thank you for that. In Jesus' name and God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Okay, let's turn to Mark chapter 13. Uh, Some of you are going to really enjoy this. Some of you are going to go, what in the world is he talking about? So hang in there, will you? I believe that we are living in a time of unmitigated security in our country. Unmitigated means, you know, there's no challenges to the security of our nation right now. We're living in a time of amazing peace. Isn't that true? And, you know, even though there's been a downturn in our economy, can we not say that we really are a prosperous people? Isn't that true? I mean, most of us aren't starving. We all have, you know, we're eating three squares a day. You know, we have all these systems to take care of us financially. It's an amazing country to live in. Excuse me. But, you know, that's not true of every country. I've traveled in different parts of the world. There's a lot of poverty, folks. There's a lot of hurt and heartache. And so we are so blessed to live in Canada. How many feel that? This isn't a great country to live in. And if you don't think so, I, ha- I have a solution for all the grumpy people and the grumblers and the murmurers. Put them on an airplane, land them in a third world country, leave them for three months, tell them they're not, you're not coming back, and then pick them up three months later. And I think they'll come back to Canada with a brand new attitude. It- it'll just change you. It really will. But you know, in spite of all of the thing, most of our world is struggling with things like famine, war, pestilence. And historian Will and Ariel, his wife Durant, point out in their book, The Lessons of History, and this was published in 1968, so I'm just going to paraphrase what they said. And, and basically they said, for nearly 3,500 years of written history has seen less than 300 years of peace on our planet, and even then there have been minor conflicts. What he's basically saying is, humanity has been at war with each other most of its human history. And I would even argue that you know, we are so conflicted that this, this situation doesn't just extend to nation against nation, but we find that this even happens in our relationship to one another. It happens in our marriages. It happens that even individuals are conflicted. And a lot of, lot of people are walking around. They're not even happy with who they are. They're upset. They're frustrated. They're despairing, you know. So conflict has been a huge part of the human equation. I don't even think we can even argue this point. You know what the tragedy of war is? In Canada, usually when we've been in a conflict, we send our young people to another part of the world to fight. Now I want you to imagine for a moment what it would be like to be living in a country where the fight has come to your nation, where people are being shot, buildings are being exploded, your neighbors are being killed, maybe a loved one is dying. I mean, your whole world is literally being shaken up by this experience. I mean, think back with me. If I could just use your imagination for a moment and go back with me in time and think of different moments, you know. Could you imagine living in England during the the German Blitzkrieg where they rained down bombs on London? People would huddle into the, you know, the tunnels under the city and live in absolute fear, you know, buildings being destroyed, Terrible things are happening. Or could you imagine being a regular German citizen living in Berlin in 1945 when the war is coming close to an end? You know, the city's being pounded by Allied bombs. And, you know, the armies are surrounding their city. And I I don't, maybe I've done a lot of reading about this, but some of the brutality that happens in war, it's absolutely mind-boggling. You and I have never experienced this for the most part. Maybe there's some individuals in this room, you've gone through this and you know exactly what I'm talking about. For the average person in this room, this is beyond our scope of understanding. We have no understanding of this whatsoever. I mean, it it would just literally terrify you. It It would have such an impact on you. And yet, peace and prosperity breeds a false sense of security. We have this attitude that, you know, life will always be as it is. And yet, it's just an illusion. Life could change very dramatically. Recently, I, I was listening to a woman who's probably now in her late 80s. Her name is Kitty Worthman. Maybe some of you have heard her little speech, and she travels throughout the United States, her new adopted home. She was living in the country of Austria, not Australia, Austria, which borders the country of Germany, which is a European country. Many of them speak German. And... Um, 
She said that when she was nearly 11 years old, Hitler was voted in to, to become the leader of Austria. You see, in 1933, when Hitler came to power, all of a sudden, you know, during the course of time, Hitler began to flourish. It had been, sorry, Hitler, Germany had begun to flourish. There was unmitigated prosperity. I mean, people were, you know, had gone from being demoralized after World War I, and all of a sudden, you know, the Great Depression had hit the world, and Germany was flourishing, and he had put everybody back to work, and so, you know, the national pride had risen, and so here was Austria, the neighbor, watching what was happening to their neighbor to, you know, beside them and watching this flourishing. And so there was tension in the country of Austria. And so they created a plebiscite and they voted that Germany would annex them. And they voted 98%. Isn't that shocking? The, so the Austrian people voted to have Hitler as their new leader in March of 1938. This is a year and a half before World War II. In 1938, what we need to understand about why would the Austrians do this? Well, first of all, you need to know that one-third of all the people were unemployed. The, the inflation rate was 25%. Do we have any understanding? We're living in a 1% to 2% inflation rate. 25%. I, I've seen depictions, uh, even in pre-World uh, War II Germany during the Weimar Republic where people would literally bring wheelbarrows to the store and the price of goods were actually being changed by the hour. They were going up. Everything was inflating. Your money had no real value. Do you understand what was going on? So, you know, a lot of people couldn't find a job. Businesses were going bankrupt. You know, people were unemployed. People were hungry. It was, you know, there was a lot of tension. How many know when you get into those environments, there's a lot of tension inside of people are frustrated. Violence was evident. Political tensions were high. Crime was epidemic. And people were just frustrated with life. Within three to four weeks after Hitler took over Austria, German officials were appointed and big field kitchens were established. Food was available for everyone. Because of his socialistic policies, he put everybody to work. You know, it's not a healthy thing for people to be doing nothing. Idleness is a terrible thing in people's lives. So people started feeling better about themselves. So it looked like Austria was about to have this transformation, this economic transformation that Germany was now experiencing. But what people don't realize, there were other changes that immediately took place as well. In a country that had 98% of the population as Roman Catholics, religious education had been taught twice every single week. But that immediately came to an end. It was replaced by political indoctrination and physical education. As a matter of fact, Hitler you know, had people teaching that you know, the old people, the parents, did not know the true realities of life and began to pit children against their parents. That even happened in Germany itself. That's what he did. Children were taught that their parents were old-fashioned. They didn't understand these new realities. Sunday now became the National Youth Day with compulsory attendance. In other words, you can't go to church. He's got something else for you to be doing. And if the parents did not comply by sending their children to these, uh, these youth day, then they were warned once by letter, severely. Secondly, they were fined. If they, this happened twice in a row or twice, they were given a huge fine, and the third time, if they kept their children from participating, they were imprisoned. How many get a little feeling like all of a sudden this is a whole new reality, and it happened overnight? Matter of fact, a lot of the parents were not pleased with the sudden change in the curriculum. Kitty's mother, this lady that was speaking, who was a very devout believer, decided to send her daughter to a convent. And she began to talk back to her mom. She was, you know, didn't want to go to this convent to be shipped away and you know, be kept away from her family. But her mom said, listen, one day you will thank me for this. Eventually, when there were school breaks, she did come back home. And she was shocked to see the transformation in the lifestyle of many of the young people. Morals were loose. There were many unwed mothers. And they gloried in the fact that they were producing babies for their great father, Hitler. It seemed strange to me, she wrote, that our society had changed so suddenly. At the outbreak of the Second World War, women were forced to go to work. The government's response was to put all children into state-run daycares for children four weeks old until grade school. The state was now raising children with people who were highly trained in child psychology. 
gun registration came into effect and people were forced to surrender their weapons. And as Kitty summarized her speech, she pointed out totalitarianism didn't come quickly. It took five years from 1938 to 1943 to realize a full dictatorship in Austria. Now why am I saying all of this? That they realized too late what had happened to them. You know, Jesus in speaking to his disciples just before his crucifixion gives an amazing word of encouragement in the upper room, but he also gives them an amazing word of warning when he's seated with, seated with them on the Mount of Olives. And we pick up the story here in Mark chapter 13 and verse 1. It says, as he was leaving the temple, one of the disciples said to him, one of the no names, some scholars may believe that it might even have been Judas, but they didn't want to say that. He said, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Now, that was a really shocking statement. I want you to think about this. If you, if you go to Jerusalem today, you know those beautiful pictures of the golden dome there that you usually see when you're looking at the city of Jerusalem? That's, that's actually taken from the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is 300 feet high, uh, higher than the city of Jerusalem. So you're on the mountain, you're looking down at the city, and you can actually see the temple area. It's a very moving sight, let me tell you. But in that day... The building that was there was three times taller than the Dome of the Rock, and it was a phenomenal structure. It was made of massive stone. It had overlaid with gold. It glittered in the sun. It was one of the seven wonders of the world. It was an architectural feat. Herod had actually was one of the great builders of all time. He had actually leveled the mountain and straightened it out and built arches underneath. You can actually see it today. He's actually building supports to sustain this entire complex. It's an absolutely amazing feat of architecture. You can understand, you know, why it took him 46 years to add on and repair the temple and what he had done to it. And yet, as they were glorying and looking at these things, Jesus said, you know what, not one stone will remain left. Wow, what a shocking statement. And so, here we see what scholars call the teaching from the Mount of Olives. And Mark in Mark, we gain a sense of the message. And I want to just point it out to you. So look at Mark chapter 3, uh, 13, verse 3. It says, As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked this question privately to him. They said, Tell us, when will these things happen? In other words, when will the temple be destroyed? That's what they wanted to know. And, at what, and what will be the sign that they're about to be fulfilled? And Jesus said to them, uh, Watch out that no one deceives you. I want you to focus on that word, watch. Watch out that no one does what? Deceives you. I want you to jump down to verse nine. He said, you must be on your guard. Jump down to verse 23. So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. Look down to verse 35. Therefore, keep watch. Jump down to verse 37. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. What's Jesus trying to tell us in this sermon? Pay attention. Be on your guard. Be alert. Right? Don't go to sleep. Don't fall apart. How many know that when Jesus talked to his disciples in the garden of Gethsemane, what did he say to those guys? He said, watch and pray lest you enter into what? Temptation. There's a trial coming. If you guys are not watching and praying, you may not pass the test that's about to happen. Now, what did the disciples do in the garden? Every last one of them fell asleep. And what happened when the test came and they came to arrest Jesus? And Jesus had warned them, you know, tonight all of you are going to fall away on account of me. And all of them said, Jesus, listen, we're going to be there for you. And every last one of them said they would. And every last one of them got what kind of a grade? Did they pass or did they fail? They all failed. And why did they fail? Because they did not watch, right? Jesus is now talking to them here. He's saying the same thing, isn't he? He's saying, you better pay attention. Something is about to happen here. This temple is going to be destroyed. And they're saying, well, when is this all going to happen? Now, Jesus is talking in about 33 to 35 A.D., okay? 
This all happens in 70 AD. So Jesus, you know, it didn't happen the next day. It didn't happen the next year. But there came a moment when the Jews rebelled against the Romans in 66 AD. And it took a few years. But when we finally get to 70 AD, literally everything that Jesus had said came to pass. Just as he said it would. And Mark chapter 13 is primarily a description of the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. You can't even dispute that. If you read it very carefully, you'll see that. But let me point out something else to you. This is not just about that moment. Because in Matthew 24 and in Luke 21, which deal with a similar passage of Scripture, they also ask the question, and when will the end of the age come? And Jesus actually is, this, this is actually included in the Mark's 13 passage because Jesus starts talking about when the Son of Man comes. So this chapter Though it primarily deals with the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, it also is a foreshadowing of what is about to happen at the end of the age. You follow this? Now, here's my argument to you so that you're going to move away from all of your charts and everything else about how the end's going to come because that's what we tend to do. Every one of us wants to know what the future holds. Isn't that what these guys wanted? They wanted to know when will this happen? Every generation has experienced moments that are so challenging they have felt at times it was at the end of the age. You cannot make me not believe that when you were living prior to World War II that people did not feel that there was dark clouds over the horizon and that if you were living in Europe in the 1930s and the 1940s that you did not feel that Hitler was the Antichrist and this was the coming of the end of the age. What I'm trying to say tonight is we need to understand something. Jesus is saying this and this message is applicable to every single generation from the very first century right up until our time. And I'm going to even argue tonight that you and I need to hear this message and we need to be very clear as we understand what Jesus is trying to say to us in light of some of the things that may happen to us. So, James Edwards writes, the purpose of the eschatological, isn't that a fancy word? Uh, okay, yeah. I gotta just explain. Eschatological just means end things. End, end things, the end times. We usually think of times, but it's usually things. It says, this discourse in Mark 13 is not primarily to provide a timetable or a blueprint for the future so much as to exhort readers to faithful discipleship in the present. In other words, why God warns us is so that you and I can be wide awake. We can be watching and praying. We can actually live the Christian life the way we should because no matter what happens in our future, if we're doing the right thing now, we're going to be okay. Isn't that great? Yeah, I love it. You know, Jesus warns against being deceived. Before he returns again, there are going to be many who claim to be him. Often we think that worshiping a false Christ is pursuing after another person than the Jesus of the Bible, and that is a right understanding. But I like also what New Testament scholar Alan Cole says, but if we follow the Old Testament analogies to worship Christ with the wrong beliefs about him is to worship a false Christ. And by whatever name we call him. And what he's basically saying is, listen, if you and I have a wrong understanding of who Jesus is, we may not be worshiping Jesus at all. We may be worshiping a Jesus that we've created. And I think a lot of times, Christians, we are, tend to be guilty of creating a God after our own image. And I can tell you that I hear this a lot in conversation. Well, God wouldn't do that. Why wouldn't God do that? Well, I wouldn't do that. Well, that doesn't mean that God wouldn't. God is not like you and I. You know, he might do stuff that you and I wouldn't do. And so in our cultural mindset today, we have ideas about what we would not do, and therefore we think God wouldn't do it. And I'm going to say a little bit more about that because I think that's a very real danger. And as a matter of fact, I think a lot of people are worshiping a Christ that's not the Christ of the Bible. And that may shake some of you up, but at least I want to stir it up in your thinking. I want you to begin to know who God is. I want you to begin to understand the nature of who God truly is tonight. So he says, For we in so doing falsely imagine him to be other than he is and other than he is revealed in the scripture to be. 
So I want to just take something that Alan Cole has said. He's kind of said there are really four spiritual dangers in this chapter, and he listed them, and that was it. I took them and developed them tonight so that you would understand them. And let me take a look at the four dangers as he points out. We're going to look at two tonight, so you can relax. I never got finished this in both services. so. But I will come back and finish this message because sometimes I don't do that. But tonight I, I really feel strongly about what I'm sharing. Okay, let's look at the first spiritual danger. And it's really a reliance on just outward expressions of faith. Now what I mean by outward expressions of faith are simply things like this. You and I, we have water baptism. That's an outward expression of faith, isn't it? You know, we do communion. That's an outward expression of faith. We're gathered together here in this building to worship God. That's an outward expression of faith. Those are all good things. I'm not saying these are bad things. I'm saying they're awesome things. But if you and I are totally dependent, solely reliant on these outward expressions of faith, and we don't have an internalized, personal, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ that if God allows these outward expressions of faith to be taken away, how will we fare? Isn't that interesting? What am I saying? We've got to have more than just, you know, a, you know, a lot of young people grow up in a Christian home. They're really depending on their parents' faith. And then they go to a youth group or a church and they're depending on the faith of the pe people that are attending the church and the leaders that are a part of the church. But what happens if the church is no longer there and the leaders are no longer there and your parents are no longer there? What are you gonna do? And that's why a lot of young people fall away from Christ because they don't have their own relationship with God. You see what I'm getting at? That's very powerful. It has to be real in our own life, folks, or we're gonna be in trouble. You know, I like delegating. You don't know that about me, but I love to do that. Wouldn't it be awesome if I could just delegate, you know, exercise, my personal fitness. I could delegate it off, you know. I have a coach right now. He's trying to get me into shape, right? So I'm working out. I just delegate this off. So, you know, you know I, got, you know, I got Andrew here. I'm delegating off all this fitness. So Andrew is just working like a Trojan. He's weightlifting. He's sweating. And I'm sitting down eating chips and going, keep it up. It's going to really benefit me. You know, you, you just laugh at that. I mean, some of you are chuckling already. You're going, what is going on? I mean, if we could actually do this, we would be paying a lot of money for people to be exercising for us. Come on now, how many say that's true? I'd have people working out for me, right? But it doesn't work that way. But yet in the Christian church, we think that we can have people do the spiritual exercises for us. You see, we think, hey, we'll, we're going to pay the pastor that he can do all this work and study and, 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 and help us understand things. And we're going to let him just, you know, pour it on. And we're going to sit down as couch, spiritual couch potatoes eating our potato chips and going, keep it up, pastor. You're doing a great job. <laughs> what am I trying to say tonight that each one of us needs to develop Spiritual disciplines. We need to become spiritually fit because if there's great challenges that come into our lives, we will not get blown away. I was reading this week you know, a beautiful text of Scripture from Psalm 112, verse 4, where it says there that God will give light in a time of darkness for those who are upright. And what I'm saying to us tonight, if the times change and all of a sudden things are not what they once were and all of a sudden we lose a sense of security in our nation, we lose a sense of peace and there's an economic change and the reality changes and that actually as Christians we now become persecuted or they even take away you know, some of the things that we've enjoyed that you and I can continue on and walk with God. How powerful is that? You know, it's interesting that Jesus was telling him that the temple was about to be destroyed, and that had powerful implications. Judaism was a sacrificial religion. How many know that they kept slaughtering all of these sheep? Every single day they were slaughtering sheep. Do you know in 70 AD the whole system came to an end? The temple was destroyed. The Jews have never been slaughtering, you know, they've never practiced a sacrificial system since. They're really not practicing Old Testament uh, sacrificial system. Judaism is not functioning that way today. It's an aberration. They've done something totally different. I don't even know how they can justify the practice of their faith because it doesn't work this way. Do you know what makes Christianity so interesting? Uh, it's because we believe in a sacrifice. We believe God requires a sacrifice. We're putting our trust in God's ultimate sacrifice and that is Jesus Christ. He is our ultimate sacrifice. But even in the first century, Jewish people that became followers of Jesus as a Messiah, all of a sudden they became, became persecuted. 
You know, the Romans did not mind, you know, other religious expressions. They all believed in many gods. That didn't bother them. You know what they would get excited about? First of all, they would get excited about any group that was brand new. Romans believed in old things, ancient things. How many know Judaism was an ancient religion? So they tolerated the Jews. But you know what? You know why Christianity was persecuted? Here's some of the reasons. Number one, it was brand new. Number two, most of the people that practiced Christianity in the first century were slaves. And how many know you don't just check out, oh, I gotta go to church right now to your master? That's not an option. So you know how most of these slaves met at night? How many know that if you're a government concerned about revolt and rebellion, people meeting in secret at night is not a good thing to have a lot of confidence if you're a political leader? So that didn't bode well for the Christians. How many can see that? And then on top of that, Jesus said, you're going to have to eat my body and drink my blood. And a lot of people did not understand that, and so they thought, you know, these guys are practicing cannibalism. That's why they're out secretly at night. They're eating each other, you know? I mean, there was a lot of confusion. So how many can say, you know, I can appreciate why they were having some problems with Christianity. And so being a Christian, you were being persecuted. And how many here in this room said, you know what, you know, if I was practicing Judaism and all of a sudden I followed Jesus and then immediately I'm struck with persecution, some people started saying, I don't really like being persecuted. You know, how many say I'm volunteering to be fed to the lions? Of course you wouldn't. And so a lot of people began to be tempted to revert back to Judaism. That's why the book of Hebrews was written. It's actually a sermon written to people with Jewish backgrounds who were followers of Christ who were tempted to return to Judaism. But listen to what the book of Hebrews tells us about the old sacrificial system's inability to deal ultimately with man's basic and fundamental problem, which is sin. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11 says, Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duty. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. The very fact that you're offering sacrifices every single day says you need to keep doing it. So therefore, it's, it's not that effectual. It's not that effect, effective. But notice what Hebrews argues. The writer says, but when this priest... Jesus had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God. In other words, this sacrifice was sufficient not only for that one day, but it was sufficient for every single day infinitum. In other words, it's always going to be a sacrifice that deals with all sin. What a beautiful thought. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool because by one sacrifice, he has made... Um, perfect forever those who are being made holy. In other words, Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient to make you and I like God. That is amazing to me. When you and I sin, when you and I put our faith in Christ, when you and I trust Jesus, when you and I confess our sins, he removes our sins. And he has the power to so change us that we can become like him. That's not true of this other religious system. You don't change that way. You just keep sacrificing for sin over and over again. That's the superiority of the message of the gospel. But now, the temple had moved away from its divine purpose. What was the temple's purpose? To bring people to God. But Jesus had now argued with these religious leaders and had pointed out that they had so abused the purposes of what God had in mind for the temple. As a matter of fact, Jesus said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. In other words, you have used religion to manipulate and exploit people. Isn't that amazing that sometimes outward expressions of faith can be tools to manipulate and exploit others? And it happens. It really does. And so Jesus said, this is all coming to an end. And it did come to an end. But what about the way we practice our faith? Is there a warning here for us? James Edwards says, Jesus' judgment is to be sure directed to the perversion of the temple's ordained purpose, but it's worth considering the wider ramifications of his judgment. How much of our nationalism, culture, and civilization itself could or should withstand the judgment of God? And what he's basically saying is, most of the way we worship God is affected by our cultural understandings. All you need to do is start traveling the world and you'll start realizing people worship God in different ways. Christians do. A lot of what you and I think is biblical Christianity is just cultural Christianity. And we don't realize that. 
You know, it's too humorous to me. Because, you know, the more you learn about this, the more you realize it's not necessarily wrong. We have to worship in a certain way. We've, come, we've gotten used to doing things in a certain way. But I'm just pointing out to you, it's not necessarily biblical. It's just the way we do things. And some of the things eventually become a hindrance to us to really get to know God. That's the problem with it. Just like people in the first century, there's times we distort what true biblical Christianity looks like or should look like. And we need to be reminded that the temple system had been corrupt for a long time. So one day Jesus is on the Mount of Olives just before he's going to be crucified. And as he approaches the city, he sees it and he weeps over it. And the Bible says this, and I said, even if you had only known or this day what would, could bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. And the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side and they will dash you to the ground and you and the children within your walls. He's actually foretelling how the Romans are going to encircle the city in 70 AD. He's weeping. He can see it. Remember something. Jesus is more than what we realize. He's, a, he's God in the flesh. And because he said you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Do you know what's so sad? They were so locked into their religious systems that when God himself showed up, they didn't recognize God. That's why Jesus was weeping. Isn't that sad? We can get into that pattern. So what can we take from this warning? Well, by putting our trust in things we see rather than putting our trust in God. It's a very real temptation. You know, I, I said it this way, I framed it this way. What would happen if things in our society began to change very dramatically, very quickly? What would happen if we lost the freedoms that we have enjoyed for a century and a half as Canadians? What would happen? What would happen if we would lose our parental rights? By the way, I think we are losing them right now. What would happen if we, we lost the ability to express our faith in God? We'd lose the ability to worship God freely in our nation. How would we respond if our church buildings were confiscated simply because we preached the Bible? You know, we were told, hey, you can, you can do this, but you can't do that. And if you felt like this is to be true to God, I have to say these things, that you would lose all your resources and assets. What would happen if, um, because, you know, we would, we, you know, how would we handle the threat and then the imprisonment of our Christian leaders? People who would just say, you know what, I'm not going to do this. And then, and then the government says, that's it. You guys are violating the law. We're going to throw you in prison. You know, there's a lot of first century people that ended up in jail. Jesus, Peter, Paul. See, we, we say, well, this will never happen in Canada. Do you know this has happened in country after country around the world that have lost religious freedoms? What would happen if our Bibles were deemed hate literature, by the way, some people think it is today, and therefore were banned, and they made us confiscate all of our Bibles, just like, you know, if you don't do it, you can go to jail, so you're going to turn in all your Bibles. And actually, it became impossible to acquire, acquire Bibles. Now, let me ask you a question. What would happen if our whole society sh shifted that dramatically? And you're thinking to yourself, well, it never happened. Don't be so sure. Don't be so sure. But can I ask this question? You know, even now, our culture sees Christians as one group that needs to be shown intolerance because they perceive us to be intolerant of what everybody else is tolerant of. Would your present spiritual condition, your current relationship with God, be strong enough to sustain you in that time of trial and testing? I mean, if all the outward expressions of faith were taken away, how would you do? How would you do? Would you have enough of the word of God inside of you to sustain you? Would you have enough of a relationship with God that you would continue seeking God's face? I'm just asking the question. You know, I have a friend that's, uh, you, know, we're, you know, he lives in India, there's such persecution in India right now. He says, you know what I'm doing? I'm trying to get people to actually memorize big tracts of the Bible. Why? Because he's convinced that the Bible will be taken away from them. What would happen if that happened to you? Do you have enough scripture to really sustain you through that dark hour? Some of you say, yeah, I'd have no problem with this. Others of you say, I am really not spiritually fit, Pastor. If this happened right now, I'd be in big time trouble. I am not ready for this kind of a challenge. I think we have to prepare ourselves. Jesus said, watch, don't be deceived. But let me move on to my second point here real quick, and I'm going to stop there. The second spiritual danger is deception from false teaching and teachers. Do we have the ability to discern truth from error? And I'm going to say that the only way you can do that is if you really get into the Word of God. That's where, and really are yielding to the Holy Spirit. 
How much of our understanding of Christianity is now being shaped by the values of our culture? So much so that it's now distorting the message of the Bible. And this is a bigger problem than most of you in this room probably realize. When we put ultimately our faith in anyone other than Jesus Christ, which the Bible reveals to us, then we're open to all kinds of strange and deceptive teachers that teach false teachings and false hope. Mark chapter 13, verse 5 says, Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. Has anybody have ever heard of this guy, Sun Young Moon? How many have heard of him? Yeah, he's a Korean leader. Do you know what? He thinks he's the Messiah. There's a whole group of people that believe he's the Messiah, and they're called Moonies. We probably haven't, you know, they're not on the radar lately, but that's a whole group. And there's always been people that have come along and said that they were the Messiah. But while researching for this message, I remember reading, and I went to it to just to confirm it, that the church at the time that Hitler came to power in Germany had some amazing things to say about Hitler. Now, you and I have to remember something. We, we can look back from this lens, from the, from the future, and look back and go, how could you be so fooled, right? But I want you to go back to 1933. This is what, where most of the church was at. Listen to what they said. Pastor Siegfried Leffler uh, said this. He declared that in the pitch black night of church history, Hitler became, as it were, the wonderful transparency for our time, the window of our age through which light fell on the history of Christianity. Now what he's basically saying is that Hitler is reviving Christianity in our nation. Some of you are looking like, really? You know, that's what he believed Hitler had come to do. He saw, he, he, he saw the church was going to flourish under his leadership. Listen to this one. Through him we were able to see the Savior in the history of the Germans. Pastor Julius Lethenser added that Christ has come to us through Hitler. How many go, boy, what were these guys eating? What were these guys smoking, right? You're just going, how blind can you be? Do you know the majority of German Christians believe Hitler was the answer for their nation? That's what I'm trying to tell you. You and I, in looking back now, go, how could they be so blinded? The man was egotistical. He was satanly, you know, satanly driven. I mean, he exterminated six million Jews. He was, one, he was evil personified. And yet the Christians in his hour, at his moment thought he was their answer, spiritually. You go, how could they be so deceived? Aren't you kind of thinking that in your mind? How many here are kind of going, wow, how could they be so stupid? How could they be so fooled? Jesus said, watch, don't be deceived. Now, there were Christians that saw through Hitler. Those guys suffered because of that. You know, we can shake our heads and we wonder, how blind can these guys be? These are Christian leaders. But before we dismiss these leaders as being totally naive, let me just point out to you that millions today are deceived by distorted versions of biblical Christianity. I'm just going to give you three quick glimpses. Number one, we have a gospel of self-helps. It's being preached in North America and thousands are listening to it. The Jesus of the cross and the Jesus of suffering and the Jesus of redemption are not being preached. What is being told to people is that Jesus is here to make your life work. It's really about you and it's not about Jesus. And that gospel is working big time. Thousands come to hear this message being propagated. Let me give you another example of it. You know, there's the message that, you know, if you follow Jesus, you can expect financial prosperity. That's being taught. As a matter of fact, that is such a big message today. It's flourishing in a very unknown place called Africa. And why is it flourishing there? Because people are poor and they want to believe that if they put their faith in Jesus that they'll have economic prosperity. They'll read scriptures from the Old Testament that say, you know, if you walk with God, God will prosper you. Pastor, you, you could come up here and show me a whole bunch of scriptures. You know what I'd say to you? Every error is t- a truth taken to an extreme. And that's the problem. You know, I could sit down here and, and, and I did this this morning. I'm running out of time. Let me just peruse through a few scriptures and I'm going to give you the last one. In 1 Timothy chapter 6 if anyone teaches false doctrine and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus and to godly teaching. So what is this little exhortation about? What is Paul going to begin to tell us? He's going to teach us what is false and what is true, right? He's telling you. I'm warning you against false teaching. Then he goes, 
He's saying the people who teach this stuff, he, he describes, first of all, the false teacher. They're conceited. They understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies. They quarrel about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, and evil suspicion, and constant friction between men of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth. He's saying these people have been robbed of truth, and they think that godliness is a means to financial gain. Isn't that the prosperity message? That godliness is now the means to financial gain? Now listen to what Paul says. He continues on. If you don't think this is what he's talking about, look what he says. But godliness with contentment is great gain. He's teaching you the true gospel. He's saying, listen guys, it's not about how much you have, it's about being content. And then he says this, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. What is Paul teaching? He's teaching that it's not how much you possess. It's not about acquiring things at all. As a matter of fact, I would argue the more things you acquire, the harder it is to really walk with God. And I'll tell you why. If you have all of these things and all of a sudden your faith is threatened and then you have to try to make a decision between losing everything you've acquired and following Jesus, it's going to be a lot harder to give up everything you've acquired. Isn't that true? Think about it. If you, if you totally own your home and all of a sudden the fact that you're going to follow Christ, you could lose your, everything you've spent a lifetime earning, you have to make a tough decision. But if you don't have anything, it's not a hard decision. That's all I'm saying. He goes on to say, people who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. If you were motivated by greed, you're in trouble. That's what he's saying. It's gonna lead you away from God. How many can already see the prosperity message? They got a problem. I'm gonna close with this last one. I know, I'm just, just give me a couple extra minutes here and I'll finish this point. Here's another one. And I, everywhere I'm turning and reading, this is the one that's coming up now. Here it comes. God is so loving, he will not judge anyone. I'm just, I'm simplifying it, Okay? That's the big one. And it goes something like this. Basically, you know, how could a good God, a loving God, ever allow anybody to go to hell? You know? So there's going to be no judgment. And uh, it's a distortion. When you have this thinking, eventually what you begin to teach is, number one, that all roads lead to the same place. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or a Buddhist or anything else. You'll all go to heaven because there's no hell. There's no sin to, there's no hell to, you know, be fleeing from. There's no, sin is not an issue. You don't need a savior, right? And how it, how it comes about, it goes something like this. You know, when you look at those passages of judgment in the scriptures, they go, there's a great discontinuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's the word they use. I'm reading this stuff right now. And they're basically saying that the whole gospel is framed in the person of Christ and he's a God that doesn't condemn, he's a God of love. And so what you read about in the Old Testament is just a distortion of what truly God is about. That's a misunderstanding that people have. And so what people are doing is changing how they interpret scripture to fit this theological grid. And there's major books that are coming out, you know, like books like Love Wins. You ever heard of that book? Rob Bell. Rob Bell teaches this. This kind of stuff comes out. Now let me just show you something that you need to be aware of. And it's found in what Peter says. Now Peter is now in the New Testament, and this is what Peter writes. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, which means false things, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them. What do it mean, denying the sovereign Lord? It means that they're denying the fact that Jesus died for their sins, paid the price. How many know you don't need a savior if you're not a sinner? Makes sense. Bringing swift destructions on themselves. The many will follow their shameful ways and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories they've made up. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them and their destruction has not been sleeping. In other words, God's gonna bring destruction on these people. For if God, now he says, now for if God did not spare the angels when they sinned but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment, and if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on the ungodly people but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, 
righteousness and seven others. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trial and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishments. How many go, there's going to be a judgment? And if you don't need a Savior, there's nothing to be saved from. Isn't that the point? What am I saying to us? I'm saying, folks, we are living in perilous times. We've always lived in perilous times. Jesus has warned every generation. He's saying, be alert, be watchful. Don't be deceived. Pay attention. He's basically challenging us, be spiritually fit. If you're not spiritually fit and a dark time comes, you're in trouble. It doesn't mean that you won't repent or you won't get your act together, but it's a lot, how many know it's a lot harder? Like, you have a major trial come into your life and you're not ready for it, and then you falter and fail. Anybody ever experienced that? Then you have to get back up. God, forgive me. What am I telling you? I'm your spiritual coach tonight. I'm telling you, you gotta get spiritually fit. You have no idea what's coming down the pike. But here's the good news. No matter how dark it gets in this world, if you're living a godly life, if you're spiritually fit, you will find light in the midst of the darkness. You'll be okay. You'll make it. God will see you through that trial. No matter how difficult it gets, God will be with you through that hour of challenge and difficulty. But you know what? If you and I are you know, letting other people carry our faith, we're letting other people help us and sustain us, then we're gonna have, we're gonna have troubles. We're gonna stumble, we're gonna fall, we're gonna be all over the map. You know? And I'm arguing tonight, this is gonna be shocking to you, I'm gonna suggest the thought that in North America, the majority of Christians do not have a biblical worldview. And what I mean by that is they're believing all kinds of things that the culture's pumping into the stream of life and they're modifying the Christian doctrines to actually accommodate the cultural values and distort Christianity to such a degree that people are being misled to believe that they're actually being saved by the Jesus that we are preaching and yet the reality is they've so distorted the message and so distorted the person of Christ that I begin to wonder if they're really saved. And I begin to wonder that if real persecution comes to Canada, you might be shocked to find out that some people that you thought were Christians are going to be the most dangerous people on the planet because they're going to turn against the people who they perceive to be, you guys are stuck on some old stuff. You've got to move off and get with the times per person. And I'm just warning us. You better dig in. You better get spiritually fit. I'm going to have a stand. How many here tonight, I'm just gonna close really quickly in prayer. How many here tonight say, Pastor, I know I need to get spiritually fit. Just raise your hand. I know, that's where I'm at. Okay, just stop for a sec. Everybody's hand that was up, go up. Look around the room. Wow, guys. Hey, listen, I love you guys. I'm your pastor, okay? I do not wanna see you guys mess up. I wanna see you guys in heaven with me. I want you to get fit, okay? I want you to start taking it seriously. I gotta dig in. I gotta start developing a devotional life. I gotta start reading the word of God. You know, we provide a lot of things in our church to help you grow spiritually. Believe it or not, we really do. Take advantage of everything. Take advantage, you know, most of what's going on in our lives and how we use our time, it's all about priorities. You don't know that, but I do. When people say, I don't have time for things, I already know it. What you're just telling me is I have a different priority. That's all you're telling me. You don't know that. I read things differently than you think. You think I'm just being sweet and I don't say anything. You know, you know. I'm, in my mind, I'm going, your priority is misplaced. Because if you want to live out my agenda and my timetable, you go, Pastor, how do you live like that? It's a highly disciplined life. But I'll tell you something. It is a rich life. You know, my brain works like a Bible. It's, it's, you know, literally, my mind is thinking biblical things a lot. I mean, 
It just moves so fast from idea to idea. It's unbelievable. That's because I'm saturating my mind in the scriptures. I know there's a battle going on. I have to talk to my soul. Believe me, when you're a leader of a large church, you're under attack every single day by a foe called Satan. He wants to destroy you, the leader. And I know I'm fighting a battle. And it's not just for my own soul. It's for my family and it's for you. And it's for our city. And it's for our world. And I'm saying, God, keep me. Help me to be strong in you. I'm not holding anything back tonight. That was as strong a message. This is a warning sermon, folks. And, you know, read the Bible carefully. Paul said to the Ephesian elders, I warn you day and night with tears. There are warning sermons in the Bible. We need to hear them. You know, if you went to your doctor and you had your, you know, physical examination and he said, listen, if you don't change your lifestyle, you're going to shorten your life. Do you take that seriously or just go, no, I'm just going to keep eating what I want to eat. I'm not going to exercise. Or are you going to say, you know, I'm going to make changes in my life. i got to get serious about this. My life is on the line. I'm telling you tonight, your soul is on the line. You need to get spiritually fit. You need to get strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. You need to maybe sit down and look at your, you know, day timer and say, you know, I've got to make changes in my priorities. I've got to change the way I'm living. I have the wrong priorities. You know what? Tonight, I even realize I'm pursuing the wrong goals. <clears throat> These are the wrong goals for my life. You have to sit down and say, God, what are your goals for my life? What is your will for my life? Not what I want. What do you want for me? And you have to trust that when God reveals to you His will and purposes for your life, that what God has in mind is the very best for you because He designed and created you. He knows what's best for each one in this room. And when you and I come to learn to really trust Him and say, okay, God, I'm going to do what you want me to do. I'm going to use my time the way you want me to use it. I'm going to really get spiritually fit. I'm going to change my priorities so that I'm going to be watchful and alert. So when trial comes my way and temptation befalls my steps, I will be strong in you, Lord. I will not falter and fail in that hour. There may be others falling down beside me, but I will not falter because I have purpose in my soul to do what is right in your sight. And I will come alongside as many people as I can, and I will do everything in my power to take as many people with me to God's gracious place of victory. I will do my part. Maybe you're here tonight saying, you know, something's stirring inside of me. My prayer today has been, oh God, would you bring genuine conviction of sin? Lord, would you begin to do a work of real revival in our lives? And we're not just going through another Sunday, another motion, but this is a new day in our souls that we are making a change. And we're saying to ourselves, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord and not just do our own thing, that we have made this choice. How many say, Pastor, would you pray with me tonight that I would get serious, that you would ask God's grace to fall on my soul, that I would begin to run this race, you know, and I would run it well. That when I come to the end of the journey that I have run this race with Almighty God, that he would be able to say to me, well done, thou good and faithful servant. I watched how you ran day after day and week after week, month after month and year after year. And you've run well. That you have fought the good fight like the Apostle Paul said. Because we are living, folks, in perilous times. And it's always been a perilous time because we have always been in a spiritual battle. And I'll tell you, you know, we have a young man here, Derek McKenzie. He's young, according to me. Derek, when you were in Afghanistan, if you became negligent as a soldier, you knew that that could cost you your life and it could cost you the lives of the people around you. You could not afford not to be vigilant and not to be awake. Folks, we are in a spiritual battle tonight and we need to be wide awake and we need to be engaged in this battle. So let's not play games anymore. There's a lot of game playing going on. But we say, Lord, forgive me. Show me what you want me to do. And help me to get serious about getting spiritually fit.